I don't think any of us need a clinical psychologist to tell us that uncertainty troubles us. And it so easily stirs up all sorts of negative feelings and emotions. We like to be sure of things. Certainty is less risky. At least we know, and therefore have some level of control. Now we know that not all uncertainty can be avoided. It comes with the world we live in. But is uncertainty the only certainty there is? Thankfully not. Thankfully there are things in life we can be sure of. And of all the things we can be certain about, none is more important than knowing whether or not we have eternal life. The suggestion that we can be certain of this is not presumptuous. It is the truth revealed in God's Word. In fact, there is a letter in the New Testament that was written with the stated purpose of informing the readers how they could be certain that they have eternal life. That letter is 1 John. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John small little letter near the back of the New Testament. And the specific statement that, that gives us the purpose of this letter is found in chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13, note, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. John's point is clear. You can know. You can be certain that you have eternal life. And then all throughout this letter, he explains how. We can be sure that we have eternal life by passing three tests. The first test in this letter we see is the doctrinal test. I, I don't expect you to remember, but five weeks ago today, we considered the doctrinal test. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? The next week, we considered the moral test. Do you obey the commands of God? We, we looked at chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, where John states that disobeying God or sin, it's not impossible for the Christian, but it's totally inconceivable. And then the third test in this letter is the relational test. Do you love the people of God? And, and all through this letter, the, these three tests just circle. They swirl and circle. John revisits them over and over and each time builds upon one and amplifies them. Perhaps the, the most clear and succinct place we see them all is in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Look, look as I read these verses for these three tests and how they, they kind of link and connect. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So, so belief, obedience, and love are all connected. 
The Christian life is not just about believing the right things, just about obeying God, or just about loving others. It's not pick your favorite. It's not best two out of three. John makes it clear that it's all or nothing. Certainty of eternal life requires the passing of all three of these tests. And this morning, our task is to consider the third test. Do you love the people of God? John hits this in three distinct places in this letter. The first place is chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where he says, one who loves is in the light. In chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, he picks this up as well. And I'll just read verse 14, where he says, We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And then he addresses this issue for a third time in chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. This will be the main focus. This text will be the main focus for us this morning. I invite you to follow along as I read verses 7 through 21 of chapter 4. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we may know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, is, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We see the main point John has here kind of bookends. So verse 7, we see, let us love one another. And then in verse 21, we must love our brothers. And it's all throughout this passage. Verse 8, if you don't love, you don't know God. Verse 11, we must love one another. 
Verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. Verse 16, if you abide in love, you abide in God. In verse 20, you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. So, so it's clear here and then all throughout this letter that genuine Christians must love one another. And in these verses, we can see three reasons why. The first reason is because of who God is. We saw in verse 8 explicitly, as well as in verse 16, God is love. As we work towards understanding what that means, that God is love, it perhaps will be helpful to start with thinking about what it does not mean. What it does not mean. So, so this does not mean that God is loving. Of course, we know that's true. This does not mean that one of God's activities is to love us. Of course, that's true as well, but, but that's not what this phrase, God is love, means. It does not mean that love is God, as if any display of affection suddenly qualifies as divine. All love is God. Okay, no, that's not what this means. Does not mean that God is only love. That all God does is love. And this is what some believe. Perhaps even a lot of people today believe this. I've heard them called Loveites. And the thinking essentially is, you couldn't possibly think that God would send somebody to hell, they say. God is love, after all. God is love. But Scripture makes it clear that he is more than just love. And we can't separate God into different parts without losing who he truly is. One author said that when somebody says to him, you believe in a God of judgment, I believe in a God of love, he's tempted to respond with, you believe in an airplane with right wings. I believe in an airplane with left wings. It just doesn't work. You must have both together. God is 100% of every attribute that he possesses. In addition to being love, John also states that God is spirit, God is light, but in Hebrews 12.29, we read that God is a consuming fire. And these essential truths of God must be held together. In the clear and helpful words of Alistair Begg, God exposes sin because he is light to consume it because he is fire without destroying the sinner because he is love. So when John says that God is love, he means this. He means that love is the essence of God's being and therefore his love finds expression in everything he says and does. Love is the essence of God's being 
And therefore, his love finds expression in everything he says and everything he does. Since God is love, it naturally follows that he is the source of love. We we see this in verse 7. Love is from God. Since love belongs to God's nature, it's woven into everything that he is, is part of what he means to be God, then he's the source. All love comes from him. And as one noted, John is not saying that love comes from God the way a letter is from a mailman, but the way heat is from light or the way light is from the sun. God is love and therefore the source of love, and these, these realities of who God is have everything to do the, with the fact that we must love each other, that Christians must love one another. Verse 7 states that loving others is evidence that one has been born of God. So, so this, this is crucial as we think about God and his nature and the fact that his people are born of God, this is the key. This this is why, fundamentally, we must love one another. This new birth, this birthing from God, is the act of the Holy Spirit connecting our dead, selfish hearts with God's living, loving heart so that his life becomes our life and his love becomes our love. God's nature is love. So if you've been born of God, or or as Peter described it, made a partaker of the divine nature, you love. Which is precisely why verse 20 says that if you claim to be a child of God and don't love others, you're a liar. You're like a child claiming to belong to parents to whom you bear no resemblance. John makes this very point in chapter 3 and verse 9, which we considered um, in past weeks, where he says, because you've been born of God, you don't sin. You can't sin because it's not in your father's DNA. And here he makes the point, because you've been born of God, you love, because that is your father's nature. Like father, like son. So when John says in verse 11 that we ought to love, it's not merely an obligation. It's not even merely imitation. As Piper says so well, we ought to love each other the way fish ought to swim in water, and birds ought to fly in the air, and living creatures ought to breathe, and peaches ought to be sweet, and lemons ought to be sour. And born-again people ought to love. It's who we are because God's nature is in us. So do you have within your heart a desire to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? If so, be encouraged. You can find encouragement here because that is a mark of true Christianity. 
And if within your heart you don't sense a desire at all, just really no desire to love others, then there really is a good reason for you to question whether or not you've truly been born of God. The second reason why Christians must love one another is because of what God has done. We see this in verses 9 through 11. The love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is shown through his sending his son into the world to die on the cross for sin. This word found in verse 10, propitiation, it's not a word we normally say over coffee. It also appears in chapter 2 and verse 2, which we looked at several weeks ago closely. This word translated here, propitiation, can also be translated atoning sacrifice. It has the dual idea of turning away wrath on one hand and covering over sin on the other hand. God came to turn away the just judgment of God against us for our sin and to cover our sins which separated us from God. And he did this so that we might live. This is what God has done. This is how God has shown us his love. This is what we're going to be remembering this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper. So I wonder, have you ever thought, or perhaps you've had heard other people say something like this? I don't really need God to be spiritual. I don't really need that religion stuff. My religion is kindness. My religion is just loving people. Do justice, walk humbly, just love. The Bible and its doctrine, really all that does is make people just intolerant. We just need love. Love, love is all you need. To anyone who would think this, I I would ask them three questions. First, what's your authority for that belief? Other than just what you think that's what should be, what's your authority for that? Second, what's your definition of love? I mean, who doesn't agree that love is wonderful? And and who wouldn't say we can't get enough of it? But who gets to define it? I mean, after all, what does love really mean? Perhaps the most important question. What do you do when you find that you yourself are not as loving as you'd like to be? What do you do then? All about love. What do you do when you fail? When you fall short? When you don't love enough? John makes it very clear to us here that we can't even know love 
apart from God because he is love. And he has showed us what it looks like in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sin. God displayed his love to us in this way so that we could be saved from the reality that no matter how hard we try, we can't love enough. And no matter how much we love, we can never love perfectly. So have you embraced the objective love of God displayed in Christ? Are you trusting in his loving gift through faith? This is the only way to be forgiven for your lack of perfect love. And it's the only way that you will be able to love others with the perfect love of God. For those of us who are Christians, John's point is this. See how God loves. See how God loves because this is how you're to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's not always easy, is it? No, it's not. Sin has a way of making things hard. We step on each other's toes. We get on each other's nerves. We disappoint. And we offend. Living together as a family of God can be really difficult. I don't have to convince you of that. You're probably very well aware how hard it can be. In his book, Love in Hard Places, Carson notes that even though what binds us together is not fleshly characteristics like race, culture, economic status, age, or interests, even though none of those things bind us together, our flesh still craves and yearns after those things. So in our relationship then as Christians, there's this inherent tension that makes it difficult at times to love one another. But because our standard is the cross of Jesus Christ, Christians don't love only when it's easy. I mean, th these verses offer no exemption for those in our lives that are difficult to love. So, so we've got to take all of our personal offenses, all of our excuses for not wanting to love the people around us, we, we've got to take all of that to the foot of the cross where Jesus died an undeserved, vicious death to bear our sin and to bear our offenses against God. It's so important for us to grasp this. But, but, but what John's saying here, and the point in this, is that we will, we will only love to the extent that we're captivated by the cross. We will only love others to the extent that we're captivated by the cross. We cannot approach maturity in loving others unless we reach that maturity of grasping the dimensions of God's love. God's love for us in Christ must be our motive for loving others. And nothing else can provide us the power to do it. So for a few moments, let's consider three aspects of the love God showed us that, that we see here in John's letter. And let, let's think about God's loved us this way, 
Therefore, that's how I need to love other people. The first aspect of this love is that it's uncaused. We see this twice here in chapter 4. Notice in verse 10. It's not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And then again in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. God's love is undeserved, and it's totally free. I mean, I think we all know how natural it is to love people because we see something in them that's attractive to us, or because they've shown us love in some way. Those people are easy to love. Jesus even said that the pagans don't have any problem at all loving people in that regard. But this is not why God loved us. He didn't choose to love us because of anything lovely in us. There was nothing in us worth loving. And he didn't choose to show us love in response to our showing him love. No, God took the initiative. God moved toward us. God chose to pour out his love in your heart because he's love. And because he chose to do so, period. There's no other reason. There was nothing in you that caused him to do that. So then, it's a contradiction of the gospel we claim to believe to think, you know, I don't really have to love so-and-so because they've sinned against me. Or they don't really love me how I think they should. And so they don't really deserve my love. Your sin against God is far worse than anything anyone will ever do to you, yet it did not keep him from loving you. In light of the cross, no sin, no hurt, no offense should keep you from loving that person. It's also a contradiction of the gospel you claim to believe, to think, you know, I don't really have to love so-and-so because I don't really like him or her. He is weird and obnoxious. You know, she's really annoying. Yeah, he really gets on my nerves. We are just totally different. Remember, God did not love you because he liked you. He did not love you because he found you to be attractive in some way. We were more than unlovely to him than anyone could ever be to us. Yet he loved and showed us his love. God's uncaused love for us means that we must love those who are unlovely or undeserving. And being motivated by how God loves us in Christ will radically affect the way we relate to others. So, so for example... You, are, you, you no longer look for the easiest person to talk to when people gather or, or those you would naturally choose to spend time with. And empowered by God's love, you don't wait for others to talk to you. You take the initiative and move toward the quieter ones, the new person, the outliers. 
We probably all know that taking the initiative to show love to those who don't deserve it and may not even ask for it is a bit risky. We risk hurt and even humiliation. We, we risk a certain imbalance, lopsided relationships, where we give more love than we receive. It's certainly not wrong to want to receive love, but when God's kingdom is ruling our hearts, we want even more to love others deeply because that is the relationship we have with God. He always loved first. He always loves most. He always loves more than he has loved, and he always makes the first move. God's love's uncaused. Next we see that it's sacrificial. This is explicitly stated in chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. God did not only give up his only son to death, he did not give up his only son to death because it was comfortable, easy, or convenient. And on the cross, Christ demonstrated a sacrificial, selfless love that cost him his very life. There is no greater sacrifice than Christ's death. And since he laid down his life for us, we must lay down our lives in sacrificial love for others. So husbands, all of you men who are married, this is how we're told to love our wives. In Ephesians 5, 22, Paul draws from this. And we might be tempted to say, got it, I see it, but she's unlovely. She's actually really hard to love. Well, that did not stop God from loving you. See, our problem so often, if not always in this struggle, is that we don't want to sacrifice our comfort, our desires, our time. We don't want to do whatever is necessary to lay down our life for her. So, so husbands, let's be reminded here that the greatest need in our marriage is to focus on God's love for us in Christ and to apply that love to the love we have for our wives. Loving your fellow church members sacrificially may involve patiently bearing with someone's spiritual struggles for a long time in a discipleship relationship. It may mean providing material help to someone who's in need. It may be giving up your Friday night to visit somebody who is ill. Sacrificial love is often inconvenient, and it always costs something. So we should ask ourselves, when was the last time I gave up something of value to me, like time, sleep, comfort, money, or resources to love a fellow church member? Mark Dever, who pastors on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., has said to young men in his church, 
If you love to read theology by guys like Grudem and Piper, but you won't inconvenience yourself to go pick up an older person to give them a ride to church, I don't know if you're a Christian. God's love is uncaused, it's sacrificial, and then third, it's tangible. It's tangible. Back in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So God's love for us wasn't this idea that sounded really, really good, right? No, it was shown to us in a concrete, tangible way. God's love acted, and so should ours. So whether it's writing a note, sending an email, or praying with somebody, helping a widow with a particular need, or welcoming someone new, in helping them to get to know our church. Whether it's inviting into your home a longtime member who you just have never really gotten to know. Whatever it is, there is virtually no end to the tangible ways we can show love to one another. And every single person you see is an opportunity for deliberate Christ-like love. Thinking on this this week and reflecting on this call to to love one another as God's people, many times I just pause to praise God that we are a church that is marked by sacrificial love, motivated and empowered by the gospel. I, I see it in so many ways. Even as recently as yesterday, I saw it on display. There's so many people and names and examples and ways in which this is happening. And I am a regular recipient of your love. And I praise God for that. And by his grace, may our love for one another continue to grow and continue to grow. So in that, to that end, with the goal of all of us continuing to make steps to grow in how we love for one another, Here's just a few practical ideas, perhaps really obvious, perhaps, I hope and trust, relatively simple, but just good for us to think about how we can make steps, how we can make progress in this. First, pray for opportunities and wisdom. Make it a matter of prayer. Father, help me to see how I can love my brothers and sisters. Pray for wisdom in how to do that. Second, be around This perhaps is one of the the obvious ones, but sometimes we perhaps don't think enough about its significance. Be around. It will be difficult to love well those you've committed to love if your only contact with them is on a Sunday morning, here and there, whenever you're able to come. So be here. Be around. Come on Sunday evenings. Come on Wednesday evenings. Look at the church activities in our calendar and think about this is an opportunity where I can get to know people and I can look for ways in which I can love them. 
The more time you spend with those God's called you to love, the more opportunities you'll see of how you can love them. And as you're around, pay attention. When you're with others, be attentive to their lives. So often our minds can be off somewhere else and we're not even engaged with the people that are around us. Phones don't help us in this, do they? As we're around, pay attention. Be engaged. Be attentive to the lives of others. Seek to learn something of their physical or spiritual needs so you can identify specific ways that you can love them. Ask others. Perhaps you're uncertain of a need and how you can show love to somebody. Ask an elder. Ask a deacon. Ask another member of the church who you think may know of a particular situation. This happens from time to time. And it's so encouraging when a member of our church asks about a specific way in which they can show love to a need that's there. And then last, I have a little book. I forgot to bring a copy up here with me. I have two copies. It's called Caring for One Another, Eight Ways to Cultivate Meaningful Relationships. It's by Ed Welch. It's only 71 pages. I will give it to the first two people who ask it, ask for it after the service. My only requirement is this, that you read it and go through it with at least one more person, all right? It's a wonderful tool. It's short. It's clear. It has discussion at the end. Um, so I, that's a great resource. And even if you don't get one of my two copies, look it up. Get a copy yourself. Just a helpful tool as we strive to grow in love for one another. Christians must love one another because of who God is, because of what God has done, and third, because of what our love does. Notice this in chapter 4, verse 12. John writes, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So, So all throughout the Old Testament, the invisibility of God brought some challenges. It, it was a, a great problem to faith. It, remember the Jews in the Old Testament? The, the surrounding nations had gods you could see. They were visible gods. The Jews had an invisible God. And they were mocked often by these surrounding nations. And it's not that different today, right? We're, we're told today we can't believe in anything that cannot be investigated by the five senses. Be, be skeptical towards anything you cannot see, anything that cannot be proven. How can we believe in an invisible God? Will God solve this problem? As Jesus said in chapter 1 of, of as John wrote, I'm sorry, in chapter 1 of his gospel, Jesus said many, many times, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God became visible through Jesus. But Jesus has been gone for over 2,000 years. Does that mean we're back to the same old problem? No, it doesn't. John is saying here that God has chosen to display himself through the love of his children. He's saying that God's love is perfected, or God's love comes to the completeness of its function, purpose, 
and gift when we love others. So, so if we take God's love and don't love others, His love is not performing the function for which it was given. Jesus speaks of this in John thirteen thirty five, where he said, By this, all people will know that you're my, my disciples, if you have love one for another. Commentator John Stott says of verse 12, it's one of the most breathtaking verses in the New Testament because it is a claim that the invisible God who once made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in loving Christian community. So if you're here this morning and you don't really know God, please know that we would, we would like and we would love for you to know him. And what, what we would say from this passage to you is that the best picture of God that you will ever have is not somewhere out in nature or through some private ecstatic experience. The best picture that we can give you of God is sitting in this room this morning. The best picture of God is sitting all around you. Our love, as imperfect as it is, is from God himself. And as we love each other, God's character is displayed. So keep coming. We would love to spend as much time with you as possible. And as you observe our love for one another, we pray that you'll come and see and experience yourself God's love for you in Christ. And let's remind ourselves, brothers and sisters of Eden Baptist Church, the place that God has designed for us to love one another most naturally and most effectively is the local church. And this is one of the reasons why church membership is so important. The commitment of joining a church begins to give a shape in appearance to our love. Membership tests the claims of our love, and it calls for particular obediences, which are described in our church covenant. Membership functions to instruct us in the very nature of Christian love and to encourage its expression through which we give evidence, that's what John's saying, the, the expression of our love gives evidence that we are really Christians. And so in this sense, as one has said so well, the local church is an assurance of salvation cooperative. It's an assurance of salvation cooperative. The local church has rightly been described as the audio-visual presentation of God to a dying culture. Are you in that picture? Do you have an active role in God's video? If you're here this morning and, and you're not a member of a church, I would encourage you to think about how joining one would not only help you to better love other people, but also allow you to become part of God's display of his character to a lost world. 
And as we think about how our love for one another makes God visible, let's remember that, let's remember what makes it distinct from the world is that it's extended to people who wouldn't even really think about loving if we're not born of God. That's what makes our love distinct, is that it's extended to people that we would never, apart from Christ, think about loving. So we need to be seeking to love those who don't look like us, who are not in the same age range, or who are in a different stage of life. We should be seeking to love those who have a different personality, and even those who make us uncomfortable. We we value this as a church, and we orient our ministries and even church activities to help you grow in love for those different than you. So I would encourage you to take opportunities to visit and get to know our elderly, to care for the children, to help in the nursery. In fact, we actually have a need right now for more help in the nursery. I'd encourage you to get to know the single adults, whether unmarried, divorced, or widowed. Work to proactively seek out members who simply may have a difficult time integrating within the church body. The reason why Christian love will stand out and bear witness to Jesus is that it displays a mutual, mutual love among people who are socially incompatible. 2020, a year of uncertainty. And in these days of uncertainty, we can be sure about what is most important. We can have confidence that eternal life is ours if we believe the truth about Jesus, obey God's commands, and love God's people. True Christians must love others because of who God is, because of what God has done, and because of what our love does. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you this morning our failure to love others as you've called us to. But we thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the one who loved perfectly in the ways that we cannot. Thank you for the forgiveness in Christ for our lack of love. And Father, may we rest in hope in him. Father, we thank you for rooting and establishing us in love. And as your children, we pray that you would grant us the power to grasp more and more how wide and long and high and deep is your love for us in Christ. Help us, Lord, to know more and more of this love that surpasses knowledge. And Father, we ask that our standard and motivation and empowerment to love in sacrificial and tangible ways would be your love for us in Christ. Lord, help us to continue to look to the cross and to continue to grow in our love for one another. Father, for those here who have never experienced your amazing love in a personal and saving way, please, Lord, show them your love in Christ and grant them the gift of repentance and faith. 
Father, you are love. And we thank you for showing us your love in Christ's death. Even though we were your enemies with no love at all for you. And as we now come to the table, we pray that you would remind us. Remind us again and deepen us even more in this undeserved grace that you poured out for us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.